0: Kia ora and welcome to Spiritual Tea. Just two brothers on a journey, hoping you'll come along. I'm John. This is Simon. And tonight, I'm really excited to to let Simon introduce our first guest. Simon.
1: Hey guys, nice to be here. Yeah, I'm so stoked to be welcoming my teacher, Noel Levine, Buddhist, punk author, and all round oh, ah, nice guy. Thank you, brother.
2: Thanks. Yeah. So yeah. I'm gonna kick
1: things up. Excellent. I'm going to kick things off. I'm
0: going to start with a big one for you, Noah. And it's, I mean, uh, what led you to Buddhism?
2: Suffering. Uh, (laughs) The suffering of addiction was the main uh, impetus. Um, But, you know, even before addiction, you know, I had a suicidal ideation as a child i had a kind of like just angst and uh desire to not exist and then drugs and alcohol took the place of that sort of self-destructive escapism and then enough suffering uh, that i was desperate enough to start meditating when i was very young 17 years old and i was locked up and I started meditating and, and I found something in meditation that felt like there was some hope there. So, uh, I kept doing it.
1: Brilliant. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about your dad and his impact on that really?
2: Yeah. You know, I grew up, my father, Stephen Levine, um, you know, was one of the sort of American, uh, early, uh, you know, new age spiritual pioneers with Ramdas and Cornfield and you know uh, Alan Watts and you know my sto- my dad has stories about drinking with Alan Watts and being at Naropa with Chogyam Trunkpa in seventy four and Ramdas and and then he went on to do stuff with uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross around death and dying and you know so it's like that sort of first or second wave of, of Western, you know, especially American spiritualists. And, you know, I I think that they're more new age because they weren't really Hindu. They weren't really Buddhist. They weren't really, you know, uh, you, you're going to hear Sufi poetry and Buddhist meditation techniques and Hindu teaching stories. And, you know, they're sort of bringing it all together. and, And, you know, I grew up with that, but you know, my dad, uh, you know, has had his own suffering that led him to practice. Uh, By the time I was born, you know, before I was born, my dad had done time in prison, had been a junkie, you know, and then had kind of come out of that to, you know, seek liberation, you know, and then connected with, you know, the cool hippie spiritual folks. And um, so I grew up around meditation. You know, by the time I was born, my dad was a meditator, he was a meditation teacher, and Ram Dass was around, and we were going to the Hindu temples and the Buddhist meditation retreats. And uh, But my mom was suffering from addiction and two divorces. And so I was born into this, uh, you know, kind of realm of there are some spiritual teachings around, um, but also there was a lot of suffering and, and neglect and, um, you know, Bottom line is, and I I hate to say it because I know my father has a lot of fans and he helped a lot of people. Uh, As an adult, I I look back and as I got to know my dad, like wonderful spiritual teacher, not so interested in being a father. Super interested in being an enlightened guy and a a wise teacher, not so interested in the responsibility of parenting. Um, And so I, I had the wounds of that for sure. But also, thank you for that. I always feel like such a perfect. For me, being born into this family that was already practicing the Dharma, and there was enough suffering and confusion for me to suffer enough. But also, the Dharma meditation instructions were available. You know, I start meditating at seventeen years old, sitting in jail with felonies and addiction and. My dad, you know, doesn't get me a lawyer to help me out of the situation. He teaches me meditation. And he says, you know, try this. (laughs) And I'm uh, a little bit like, you know, fuck your meditation shit. I need real help. But I'm desperate (laughs) enough to be like, okay, I'll try anything. And as I said, I started to pay attention to my breath. And I was like, dad's right. Like this shit alleviates the suffering, at least momentarily. It helps me a little bit. And so I'm going to, I'm going to investigate deeper. I'm going to keep going.
1: That's yeah. brilliant. Thank you. Actually, it kind of mirrors Buddha, doesn't it? Actually, what you're saying about your dad, that Buddha left his wife and child. So, yeah, but yeah. thank you for that. I think, John, you had a question, didn't you?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you're, you're deep-rooted in the punk scene as well. Um, how do you think the punk and, and Buddhism fit?
2: You know, the Buddha's first noble truth uh, is that there is suffering, that suffering is normal, suffering is uh, the status quo of the world and of humanity, uh, you know, goes on to say there's a cause of that suffering, that dissatisfaction, that there's a way to end it. I, I, my, my experience of punk and involvement in the punk scene is that it's also founded on that first noble truth of like seeing the suffering and seeing through the bullshit of society's sort of facade of like, no, you should be happy. Everything's okay. Like, <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. Like this is a world of greed and hatred and delusion and ignorance. And punk rock is the voice of that, you know, and coming out of, you know, England in the seventies and New York and, you know, coming out of this sort of like, Hey, this like, you know, rock and roll, party music is not telling us the truth and the pistols came and said no no we're going to tell the truth and the clash and the ramones and then all of the punk bands that, that followed that said no we're going to like scream about the uh corruption and ignorance that society is really fueled by and so it's not so different you know than than the buddhist teaching of like there is suffering yeah. and we're going to talk about it we're going to stop denying
1: it
0: Amazing. Yeah. I've got to ask with the punk scene, I'm going to go slightly off topic. I got to know who you're listening to at the moment.
2: You know, I listen to, uh, I I'm all over the place. You know, I'm rooted in 77 punk and a lot of the, you know, UK stuff. I mean, I'm still listening to the Clash and the pistols and uh, you know, buzzcocks and damned. And, you know, I'm listening. I still listen to that stuff. But then, you know, second wave, you know, I listen to the Ramones a lot. You know, that, that stuff that, like, when I was an angry teenager was a little too poppy for me, like the 77 stuff. I'm like, I love that shit now as an adult, <laughs> as an old man. Um, but also the, you know, hardcore from, you know, Bad Brains and Minor Threat to Black Flag and Circle Jerks. And, um, you know, the first record I ever bought was a band, a San Francisco band called Crucifix. Uh, and, and, and uh, uh so yeah. good, like one of the San Francisco bands that was a little bit more influenced by GBH and, uh, exploited and, you know, kind of the, you know, the, the Mohawk punks. Um, but I'm all, I'm all over the place with punk rock. I like ska. I love reggae. I like ska punk. Um, I listen to hip hop, um, You know, and, you know, and then when I got, you know, when I was already a big fan of Seven Seconds and uh, Minor Threat, but when I got sober in 1988, then there was the straight edge movement, you know, that was, that had come out of Minor Threat, but then there's all these drug-free bands, Youth of Today and Gorilla Biscuits and Judge and Inside Out and uh, Instead and Side By, you know, I mean, the list is so Long, and it was so you know to be a teenage drug addict getting sober punk rocker. I mean, like, oh, there's all these drug free punks and this whole movement of straight edge punk. Um, so that's been very important yeah. to me, and I still, still listen to straight edge, and um, you know, so I'm uh, you know, and I like Poppy punk too like i'm a fan of no fx yeah. i'm a fan of teenage bottle rocket and you know some of these little bit newer bands that are <laughs> poppy and punk and, like, i like that shit too um so i'm i'm all over the you know, you're I, like to
1: tell like, me bowling uh, for soup though
2: oh yeah sure you know ska punk that stuff sure Like you know like <laughs> i don't i don't i don't know but if you you know like that sort of scar kind of pick it up pick it up pick it up like a you know, bowling pursuit kind of stuff fucking great you know like i think that's great it's a little it's not it's not my first choice but if it's on i'm like
1: yeah, I've, I've seen him like, to be fair. yeah yeah brilliant well thank love you for it. that yeah brilliant i was obviously as i said in the intro you're the author of some amazing books i've read them um i was thinking obviously when was it Dharma Punks? It's nearly 30 years ago you wrote it, isn't it?
2: No, only, we're coming up on 20. It was, it was published in 2003. So it's only 18 oh, years. Oh, okay. 18 years.
1: So, and then is Heart of the Revolution the last book?
2: Uh, Refuge Recovery. So it goes... Refuge Recovery. It uh, goes uh, um, Dharma Punks in 2003, Against the Stream in uh, 2007, Uh, Heart of the Revolution in 2011 and um, Refuge Recovery in 2014. And then I haven't done anything in the last six, seven years, Um, but maybe, maybe there's something else that will come. I, you know, all three of those, all four of those books felt like organic, like Dharma punks felt like, okay, this is my story. I want to share it. I want to make the Dharma accessible to the punks and to the, you know, next generation and, you know speak about it in a different way in a personal way than than the hippies or the baby boomers you know we're speaking about it uh, against the stream felt like that was just like the organic next step like here's why the buddhist teachings are so radical and so against the norm um, yeah and then heart of the revolution but like okay let me give a, a closer look at how do we practice forgiveness how do we become kind how do we uh, develop compassion and, and uncover that and then Refuge came out of like, and all of these addicts want to use the Dharma to recover. Let me create a Buddhist-based recovery program. After that, sure. my publisher is still, you know, for years was like, well, write some more books. You know, like you your books sell. Write some more books. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't do it. You know, I can't write a book to sell it. I can't write a book for money. Like there, It has Blech. to be... Something that really wants to be said, and that I feel like I'm the right person to say it. And so far, that hasn't happened. I'm starting to get motivated on some writing projects, but right now, it's uh, still germinating.
1: Oh, brilliant. Well, I, I do have a question about your books, actually. But before, I don't think I've ever told you this story. So, the way that I got into to finding you and the Against the Stream Meditation Center was actually Food John. I think. Mm. It must be like about three years ago yeah, i was kind of getting now. interested in buddhism and i am um, i was just talking to john about it and he was like oh yeah i read this book years ago by this old punk dude <laughs> and um it's called dharma punks you should read it so i bought it and um that was my interest it was actually john that got me into you and obviously it... the way it changed like years later here you are it's funny yeah. the way things go
0: that's the only book I can pinpoint and tell you exactly where it was that I read it. I bought it. Yeah. I bought it in February of 2011 and I went to Morocco with my wife. Um, and when we left the UK, it was heavy, heavy snow. Um, and I basically read it the flight across and every night I couldn't sleep in the hotel. It was too noisy. So I read it over three days in Morocco. And it's the single solitary book that I can pinpoint the exact time where I bought it and read it. So and it's cool. resonated. Yeah, and I've kept it. It's 10 years ago now. And I've kept that book. And I've bought all the others over the years, but I still go back to that, like, regularly. Yeah. And did so, you get,
1: Thanks, John. Did you
2: get the book, because um, it was never published in the UK. And, you know, no. I had a, an agent who was like, it's like on the bestsellers list in the States and, and, you know, like they're translating it into German and, 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 um, uh, you know, uh, into Dutch and, but the UK publishers were like, ah, it's too American for us. We're not going to publish it.
0: (laughs) I had to track it down. Like I, I can remember that I came across it in, I read an interview with, um, Porcell from you know you today and that and he he name checked it, and so I was like okay i'm gonna I'm gonna track it down and it took took about a month to find it. I ended up getting it second hand copy from a second hand bookstore in in the north of England in sheffield yeah. um yeah and and uh and then uh, I had to get my mum to pick it up for me, and she brought it because I was living on the south coast at the time. So she brought it like the like the three hundred miles to my house. It's
2: like it's more. Of, I, it's, it's like the, those kind of stories are even better because it's like that, yeah, yeah, like that yeah. colored vinyl that I couldn't get anywhere. And I had to- yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, and and that was it. Like I say, it, I I can pinpoint it to that date. You know, I, I can remember finishing the very last chapter while sitting in the hotel lobby waiting to get on the bus to fly back to the UK. So yeah, it, it basically that trip to Morocco was a great trip, but I do, I connected with that book so deeply now. So I'm I'm eternally Beautiful. grateful I'm for it.
2: Glad to know it. And then you turned Simon yeah. on to it and then Simon and I yeah. have been talking for the last couple of years so about about all of this. And, and now there's yeah. the yeah. Dr. Punk's first Sangha over there that you guys are, yeah. about, which is awesome.
1: It's amazing. It's funny how those, the one thing, that perpetual motion that we just never know about. It's beautiful. Yeah, I just bought mine on eBay, so my story's lame. Sorry. For... <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I bought it, so who cares? Yeah. But yeah, what I did want to ask you, though, um, not trying to get too soon. I, obviously... like,
2: I feel like you had read, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I feel like you had read it and like you contacted me. You were like, in India. You're like, I'm in Goa. And, I, yeah. and, you're like skating, <laughs> and you're like skateboarding, like in Goa, you know, and, and you're like, and when I get back to, you know, uh, I want to connect. Yeah. And I, I felt like that's a like kind of a cool story that you're like in India. Yeah, What takes place in Goa, in India. And you were like, I, w- I need to meet this guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was it. Well, I'd actually been listening to some of your podcasts as well. Yeah. Um, obviously the Dharma talks and I've listened to a lot of, well, I don't know how many hours I, I was trying to work out probably 40 or 50 hours, I reckon of your voice. Like, so that's pretty much devotion, but yeah. So, um, that is a better story. I should have thought that that's for the next podcast. Then we'll do a follow-up in a year. Yeah. But yeah. So what I was going to ask, and I've kind of, you have talked about this in your, um, in your Dharma talks before a little bit, but, when you look back on the books, obviously Dharma Punks being the the furthest to go to now, do you still resonate with everything or the bits like, do you know what? I feel slightly different about this now.
2: Um, I'm sure I feel slightly different about a lot of things. Um, uh, I teach different, you know, it's the thing like about recording something or writing something down is that hopefully our perspectives are evolving so you know there's that kind of core like here's what the buddha taught and most of my stuff is like here's what the buddha taught but how we understand that and how we embody it changes over the years of our meditation practice and so and even dharma punks like i recorded the audiobook i don't know not that many years ago like Four or four year maybe four years ago. So, you know, like 12 years after it came out or whatever, I, they finally said, hey, like, let's do an audiobook. And so I went into the studio and had to read the book word for word, you know, and record it, and which was, you know, it's like, I haven't, you know, I wrote this 15 years ago or whatever. Um, and so it was quite interesting to be like, oh, I would probably talk about that differently now, or I would say that differently, or even my perspective of that memory is a bit different, you know, over the years. So, of course, there's there's some evolution. And there, I think, you know, in writing, in teaching, there has to be the, the, the humility to be like, yeah, maybe I was wrong, you know, or maybe like uh, the, the, what I used to believe doesn't make as much sense at this moment or how I'm looking at things now is different than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago.
1: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah. Just really quickly. I'm just going to, wow, it? <laughs> My, My son like needs jobs. to
2: bring me, some, bring me some lunch. I told him to not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, that's nice though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, while Simon's looking for what he's looking for, I'm just going to ask you. Obviously, Buddhism's got an image for people outside of the culture and everything, and you you certainly don't fit that image, you know. Do, do you think it's it's hard for some people like to, to recognize you as a Buddhist?
2: Um, you mean people who aren't Buddhist?
0: Yeah, yeah. Would they? You know? Do you, I mean, for me, it was easier to come to Buddhism through through you than yeah. it was. You know, a, a a you know a regular Buddhist. Dare I say it? You know. Oh,
2: do you for think that's sure. Helping? Um, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It's been a big, big part of what I've done and been able to do is open the doors. You know, to a lot of you know people like you and and lots of other you know, and also for um, not just like our you know punk rock, surf, skate, motorcycle, whatever subculture. Um, but also for addicts, you know, of like creating refuge recovery and saying like, hey, the Dharma is a perfect treatment for addiction. And here's a recovery path. Mm-hmm. Not all of those people are tattooed hooligans like us, um, but they are. You know, they do have their suffering. And, and, and you know, and Buddhism really speaks to people who are um, not interested in a theistic approach, you know, a Judeo-Christian islamic god is going to take care of your problems you know and and a much more practical humanist psychology now when it comes to some of that i i I often wonder like because of my appearance am i the best spokesperson for you know buddhist recovery you know like would it be more accepted by more kind of you know upper class middle class whatever alcoholics if it wasn't some, you know, tattooed thug that was the teacher or the founder or whatever. Um, But, you know, I am who I am and I I help who I help. And, you know, there's this one one place where the Buddha says, um, you know, if we practice diligently in this path, we will become a refuge for all living beings. And I've often reflected on that of like, you know, if we're kind, if we're compassionate, if we're loving and, um, wise you know we'll, be, we'll not only like will we experience an internal refuge but we will become a refuge where people can come to us because we're non-judgmental and we're kind and we're forgiving and we'll become a refuge and i've often thought like all beings like it's just a little like, the bar is a little too high <laughs> to, like <laughs> yeah. everyone you know <laughs> I mean, even the buddha himself like people hated the buddha he was you know falsely accused of terrible shit he was there was assassination plots against him like um, he was not a refuge for everyone because he was an atheist and all of the theists were like this guy's telling us that our beliefs are bullshit you know and they didn't like that he was against sexism he was against racism he was against you know all of these oppression so when you're a radical you're not a refuge for those who are stuck in small minded attachment to their religious or social political, you know, agendas. But I hope that uh, in some way or another, I've been able to use my life so far to be a refuge for, you know, people who do resonate with uh, the way that I teach Buddhism and the way that I live my life. And, and, And I think that that's important is that it's not about teaching. It's about modeling. It's about how do we show up yeah. in our parenting? How do we show up in our, you know, communication? How do we show up in our sex life? You know, in all of it, not just like, can you give a good lecture? Because there's a whole bunch of people that are so full of shit that can give amazing lectures. <laughs> but they don't have any integrity <laughs> at all when it comes to how they actually behave in the yeah.
0: I know it's so so wonderful that you use that word model. You know, (laughs) I I I really I love that word. My wife says it a a lot. Like this is the model that we're presenting to our children, and that and it's really I think it's an a perfect example of um of it. I mean, my my sort of my wife and I talk a lot about childhood traumas and things like that, and we'll say that you know it's not it wasn't given to us. It was our origin story. And now we're we're changing that model. And I think it's just what you're doing is changing that model for so many people, particularly and I think the way you look and the way you, you talk and come across is benefiting so many people because of it. You're you're creating that new model. Well, yeah. you know, there's
2: what, I know that part of what you guys and you know, not to not to lead it too much, but um, you know, this question about masculinity. And sacred masculinity and wise masculinity, which I don't feel like I totally have my mind wrapped around, you know, what it means and what's the feminine and what's the masculine. But what I do know is that, like, I, you know, when I started practicing Buddhism, I was just like, you know, all of these men who were whispering poetry and felt to me like there was no room for masculine. felt like in order to be spiritual, what they were modeling was that you had to be emasculated. You had to speak softly and kind of, you know, uh, wear long flowing robes. You know, and I was just like, you know, I, I just, I can't be that guy. That's just, it's not authentic. You know, like I'm the guy who like swears and farts and rides motorcycles and skates and, you know, and wants to like, I want to be, um, you know, an authentic male human being. Uh, and, and and that be spiritual, rather than spiritual men uh, are, are 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 always feminine. Now, of course, there's a place for hmm. femininity and softness and you know uh, kindness and all of those things. And again, this is where I get a little um, confused about why what we're classifying as masculine and what we're classifying as feminine, because. Ultimately, it's just like, be a good person. And being a good person includes being vulnerable and includes being intimate and includes being humble. But also, there's a place for energy and vehemence and passion, right? Um, Without it becoming like there's, there's no room for any sort of aggressiveness. You know, it's like, I'm kind of an aggressive person, you know, and I want to be mindful of that. Um, but I don't want to say like, oh, you can't be, even though that's part of your authentic, you know, testosterone wiring, there's no room for that in spirituality. And it's like, no, that's bullshit. There has to be room for everything.
1: Mm. Yeah. I think from our point of view, where we're coming from with it is because, I mean, I don't know about the stats for America, but over here, the biggest single killer of men under 45 is suicide. And the reason for that, a lot of it is because of this toxic masculinity. So the inability of men to be some of the things that you've said, to be vulnerable, you know, to be in touch with their emotions, to actually say, do you know what? I'm fucking struggling. So it's those kind of things. We're certainly not advocating that kind of just going to either extreme. It's not to be mm. all the feminine or all the masculine. It's to be in touch with them, all of it. And yeah, of course we're men, and of course we've got those desires and that raw kind of. Sometimes we want to break shit, you know. But it's whether you break someone's face or whether you cut some wood, you know. It's the mm. the use of that energy. And but if I want to cry, I'll call John up. I will. So it's that kind of balance, really. Okay. and that's a big deal over here so within the men's circle within the surf songer this is what we're looking at we you know we go and have our sea swim we we burn some wood but we also talk and are vulnerable and some big tattoo guys so it's it's so away from the norm over here you know we're such a historically football culture stiff upper lip don't talk mm. about your emotions so yeah i agree with what you're saying it's just it's a kind of it's a bit of a shift that we're trying to, we're trying to model all of it. And like you said, show the vulnerability.
2: No, it makes perfect sense to me. And I feel like this is part of the against the stream, you know, kind of rebellion. Like it's to be a tough guy to be a, you know, that's easy. It's effortless to be closed down, aversive to pain, reactive, you know, like that's, that's normal to be, compassionate and in in touch with your emotions and able to express Mm -hmm. it's a rebellion against our survival instinct this this isn't only cultural right this isn't just the uk or the states or you know like almost every culture you know puts men into these boxes and women into these boxes and is conditioned in, in these ways uh so i completely agree with what you're saying that we all need to do that. You know, we all need to, uh, you know, get, uh, one time I was um, giving a teaching and I was crying during the teaching. And then uh, one of the the people that was there uh, made this comment and I thought it was, they said, you know, in our community, vulnerable is the new macho. And I just (laughs) love that. I just, you know, I was just like, oh, it's true. in like our in our in our subculture of of buddhist punks uh and and recovery we put a big value on are you in touch with your emotions can you be authentic um not are you just stoic and disconnected
1: yeah yeah and i gotta say the girls like it as well for sure you know a guy who's in touch with their emotions who can be vulnerable can also have the manly manliness whatever but yeah certainly in my experience that actually leads me on to my next question you may not want to answer this but um <laughs> you did talk about it in a dharma talk recently uh it was a, when you were reading through the heart of the revolution you were going to, through it each chapter and it was the one on love and i can't remember the basically what you said it was a quote that you said was a bit cheesy but the older i get the less i know about love do you remember that and so I just wondered if you could expand upon that. Obviously, I've come out of a relationship as you know recently, and I kind of feel like the same. It's like the older guess like, is there the one? I think we've been sold such bullshit for fucking <laughs> decades in songs, in films, in fairy tales. It's such bullshit. I don't, you know, I don't personally think there is the one at all, this soulmate idea. So obviously I know you're in a relationship now, but um yeah, I'm just interested to hear your your view you just expanding that of the less you know. <laughs>
2: I was um, I was watching this I think it's it's on Netflix or something like that and it's a show it's a Spanish show and it was done by the same people that did the um, money heist but it was another one about like uh, you know one of those islands off of, of Spain and some drug deal thing. but anyways there was this like there was a scene that really stuck with me where there was this couple that was in there like 40s or 50s like I could relate like they, they were my age and they you know they had older children. And they were kind of going into the second marriage. And at one point the woman turned towards the man and she said, are you even in love with me? And he just like instantly said, of course I'm not in love with you. I'm not a teenager. No, no. you know, and, You know, and he went on to say, like, you know, I'm not a teenager. I'm not, in, you know, but I love you very much. And we're a good couple and we're having this, you know, kind of where, where you balance me in this way. And, you know, and almost it's not the best example, but I just related to it of like approaching relationship in a loving way that is, you know, saying like, uh, what can I learn here? How can I balance you? How do you balance me? And not that like head over heels intoxicated love it is that at times, but a more a more mature relationship to, um, you know, love as a process that unfolds and love as uh, difficult conversations, like I love you enough to have this conflict. I love you enough to uh, apologize when I'm unskillful. You know, like that. That it's much more like
1: uh,
2: I don't know. I just think like. The older I get, and the more experiences, and marriages, and divorces, and children, and you know, falling, falling head over heels in love for three months, and then being like, "What the fuck happened to that? Where did that go?" Um, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not so interested in that kind of teenage intoxication. But I'm interested in a, a mature, long connection that feels like it's a process of healing, of deepening intimacy. Uh, which means it's going to be really fucking unpleasant sometimes to be vulnerable and intimate, not just great sex all of the time, but the hard conversations and the, uh, you know, unpleasant vulnerability that comes with that kind of love. So yeah, I feel like I'm, I'm still learning and um, a lot of wounds, you know, a lot of uh, trauma from my own childhood, that's still kind of coming up in relationships and, uh, seeing you know, the kind of people that I choose to be in relationship with. and, and uh, But seeing all of it, it's like, this is my spiritual practice. This is my, uh, this is my, this is what I'm here for. I'm here, you know, like I think, like I'm here to serve others, but to heal my own shit. And that can't be done. The relational healing can't be done outside of relationship. And so that kind of commitment to, I have to find the appropriate loving relationships whether that's loving men in my life and you know friendships or you know loving romantic relationships because that's I really believe where the healing comes from and of course this is one of the reasons why the Buddha made the path to awakening so relational about how we speak about how we listen about how we act about how we relate to money and sexuality it's all relationships um, and it's not just am I a really good meditator, right? Because you can be a really good meditator, but be a fucking mess <laughs> in your relationships. Okay, so that's, <laughs> that's the world. Right? Um, you know, that's some um, of my perspectives on yeah. love.
1: Uh, no, I appreciate that. I know it's not a hot, an easy one. I remember from that Dharma talk that it wasn't an easy. You're kind of like, I don't really know what to say now. <laughs> So, yeah, I appreciate that. I was just, actually, I was indulging myself, so thank you. Really <laughs> well, I appreciate
0: I, that. I read uh, the Holistic Psychologist posted something on Instagram recently where she said, um, seeing your partner's trauma is a love language. And that, that sort of resonated immensely. And just what you've said there kind of connects to that in my mind, is that when we see our partner in their pain, and it, that's the difficult part that you're talking about isn't it when we sit that that awkwardness that uncomfortableness whereas men we want to we want to fix that which we cannot obviously we can only fix ourselves we can't do anything for anybody else short of being supportive. but yeah recognizing somebody's trauma as a love language made so much sense to me because it just opened up my eyes to a lot more even like you said even if it's not your you know your sexual partner but rather your friends and your family just from seeing that and we, I, th- I sometimes think we get too wrapped up that a love language is only between a couple, a spouse and, and so forth.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you. I wanted to ask you um, a question just for you to, I want to, you know, delve a little bit more into Buddhism. And one of the Dharma talks that you did where you talked about the four types of happiness, which was something that I taught with my own group. And um, it's, It just makes so much sense to me, especially the, you know, the top two. So do you want to talk a little bit about them? Is that cool?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a um, because the cause, the second noble truth uh, points out that the cause of suffering is our craving and our clinging. And and then, you know, I'm often guilty of like, you know, uh, money will never make you happy. Uh, you know, sense pleasures will never make you happy. Well, if you're looking for ultimate, because they're impermanent and because you get too attached, you get to, you know, you'll suffer more about kind of money and sex than you will uh, have joy, probably. You know, if you really take an honest look at your life and you say, like, well, how much joy have I had in relationships versus how much suffering? How much joy has the material stuff brought me versus suffering? You know, but the Buddha and I think that this is important. At one point, the Buddha says there's four types of happiness that Simon is is uh, pointing towards. He said there's there's a there are these low levels of material things do give us some sort of temporary happiness. You know, they're pleasant money, you know, can create comfort, you know, like, Hey, there's something nice about having a comfortable home or a reliable vehicle or a cool hot rod or motorcycle or whatever it is. Like it's, a, you know, there's a little, um, little bit of happiness there, but it's just not reliable. It's just, that's too impermanent. It's too, uh, you've probably heard the story that I like to tell about when my lowrider, I had 1964 Impala lowrider in New York city you know, with the bags and everything. And it got totaled. The, the mechanic like tore the frame in half. And um, and that sort of like, I love this car, but it's impermanent. And I know it's impermanent. It's not really the source of my happiness. But how often do we create so much suffering in our lives because we're so attached to our material things? So the, the Buddha's teaching is like, there's a low level of happiness there as long as you're not attached to them. If you're attached, if you're clinging, then it'll just create so much suffering for you. And likewise with sense pleasures. Like there's a lo- you know there's a level of you know good sex, wonderful food, like a good wave, you know a nice ride, you know music. Like there's so many wonderful sensual experiences that we can have, as long as you're not like addicted to them. Uh, you know, that they, they do provide this sort of level of, of contentment, you know, as long as you're not too attached. He said, But the higher form of happiness is the happiness of um debtlessness, of being free from owing anybody anything. And so that does mean financially, you know, that sort of financial freedom. But even more so it means emotionally. It means that we are no longer oh amends like we need to ask for forgiveness that we've cleaned up all of the ways we've been unskillful. We don't, Oh, and not only amends, but also appreciation, you know, of like actually going through our lives and saying like, I don't want to like be on my deathbed being like, fuck, I really forgot to thank those guys or those women or those people or, you know, and I I feel like I didn't uh, express my gratitude. So uh, a debtlessness emotionally, You know, and and and, but he said the highest form of happiness for human beings is integrity, is to live our life in a way that is blameless in the eyes of the wise. So there's not a bunch of amends to make, so that there's not a bunch of, you know, messes to clean up, that you're not being and the important part here is blameless in the eyes of the wise. Because like I said earlier, even the Buddha in latent being criticized. Needed, You know, by people who are like, how dare you dismantle the, you know, patriarchy? How dare you dismantle the sexist se- system that we live in? How dare you try to speak out against the racist, systematic, you know, supremacy of the caste system? Right. So blame all over his face. <laughs> but he said, you know, he said, but I, I, I feel blameless because my intention is pure. I'm coming from a place of compassion. I'm coming from a place of wisdom. Uh, uh, although I'm offending people, I'm not, it's not my intention to offend. My intention is to be, uh, in integrity and to be wise and to be, you know, truthful. And the truth is racism is wrong, and the truth is sexism is wrong. And the truth is, you know, and if you don't like that and it offends you, that's not on me, that's on me, right? Um, so that that level of blamelessness, that's not Switzerland, right? It's not fucking, we don't have any opinion. We're not centrists, you know, like, well, I don't know, maybe sexism isn't wrong. No, it's fucking wrong all of the time. <laughs> you know, and if you don't get
1: that, Amen to that. It's because
2: of your ignorance. Anyways, so yeah. the, you know, those are the four oh, types yeah. you know, and so then, like we, I, we put it all together. It's like, yeah, I like you know the material stuff. I like the sensual stuff, and I want to live a life that is free from uh, debt and and free from you know blame that is well deserved. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that Dharma talk stuck with me that one on your one on um, the realms you know the, the six realms stuck with me more than any others and I think the the biggest thing about that with the happiness was that the more work that John and I do the altruistic being of service the better you feel from it and that, that sense of well-being from it and the want to do more and that's why we started this podcast was it just it really does fill you up, you know, with happiness. Mm. So whereas yeah. if I buy a pair of trainers or have a good sexual encounter, like you said, you just want more. So you do suffer. Whereas I'm not suffering for any of this. You know, I'm just giving and enjoying it. And yeah, it, it just it makes complete sense to me. I think
0: mm. that's Absolutely. the point. So
1: yeah. Thank it, you.
0: it does. It does. Um no like you know, you've you've meant a lot to my myself, you've meant a lot to Simon. What would you like your legacy to be? I,
2: You know, I'm not, um, I'm not really, I don't think about that much. Um, I, you know, I hope that I, you know, like I said, like uh, f- first of all, I hope I'm not done. You know, I'm, I turned 50 this year. I hope I've got plenty <laughs> of more time to try to be of service and to try to support people and, and, um, and do my own healing. I'm certainly not done with my own process and evolution. And uh, I feel like Dharma Punks did something cool for the world, you know, like yeah. I, that it did do something really cool for my generation and the world. And I'm proud of that in, in whatever way. Uh, and that'll be part of legacy, I guess. Um, yeah. Maybe, you know, right now, like refuge recovery feels like. Uh, So important. And, you know, for 87 years or 88 years, we've had Alcoholics Anonymous, right? We've had this Bible-based Judeo-Christian, God is the only solution uh, recovery program around the world. And it's pretty awesome. I got sober in AA. I'm not a total AA hater. But I'm also not a Christian. And I'm not, you know, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I'm a Buddhist. And so it's like, I found my way for that to work for me. Um, but refuge recovery is now opening the doors to people to say, you don't have to believe in God. You All you have to do is practice meditation, practice renunciation, be of service. You can practice these principles without a external uh, belief in some, something outside of yourself. It's humanist psychology. So... Uh, in some ways, I, I, I think that most – who knows what I'll do next. Maybe I'll do something really cool. But as I look at my life now, I would think that refuge recovery would be the biggest legacy of this kind of yeah. creating Buddhist re- – and even though, like, it's been ripped off o- already, like, there's already other Buddhist recovery programs that have just kind of taken what I've created and, and changed it. Still, I, I still feel like that's part of my legacy. Like, they're – you know, like, they're <laughs> just – you know, uh, you know, like in punk rock or whatever. I don't know if you want to call the Ramones the first punk band or the Pistols or the Clash or whoever, but whoever that was, everyone that came after them, like, you know, evolved yeah. from that legacy of the Ramones in 75 and then the Pistols in 76 and then the Clash in 77. And, you know, it all goes through that. Uh, and so, like, my legacy will be... Uh, In one way or another, I I was the guy that created a Buddhist recovery program. And now there's a bunch of them. And that's fucking cool.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've worked the 12 steps. And I now use Refuge Recovery. The book is my basis of it. So, And I've introduced it to some of the guys in my groups. Um, So, yeah, it makes a lot more sense to me. Like you, I I don't believe in a God. I I sort of look at the universe as everything. Um, but for sure, it, it, it's if, if you've got to leave a legacy, that's a pretty good one to leave.
2: And I yeah. don't really care that much, you know. Like yeah. my my name is on the Refuge Recovery book because that was the only way to get it published. Um, I'm doing a second edition right now. I'm editing it, and I'm going to take my name off of it. I don't need to be the founder. I just wanted it to exist, you know. So I just wanted yeah. to put it out there and. I'll always be the founder, but it's not my program. This is for the people, right? Yeah. So, you know, like I, I actually am a second edition. It'll just be Refuge Recovery. It doesn't have to have my name on it. I actually gave the rights to the nonprofit organization of Refuge Recovery. I gave the the proceeds to the nonprofit because really like that's something that I want to be part of and it's not me running it. It's the people running it. It's it's peer led when it comes to the meeting. And that's where like the anonymous, you know, yeah, like we all know definitely. Bill Wilson created, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and wrote the big book, but it's not Bill Wilson's AA. It's not Noah's Refuge Recovery. It's just AA. It's just Refuge Recovery. Yeah,
1: yeah for that, sure. That's beautiful. That's a really good way to look at it, Nora. Um yeah. What I was like scribbling around for before was this. <laughs> talk us through this this was after um dharma punks wasn't it that you recorded this
2: yeah i think what year is it on there i think it's dharma punks i think maybe against the stream might have come out too around there um i'm not sure if against the stream might come out yet but yeah you know in my own like i don't know ambition or ignorance or whatever like this filmmaker approached me early on and was like, Hey, can I make a documentary about like you and what, you know, you're creating. And um, I was like, yeah, sure. Not really knowing that I was signing up for a film crew to follow me around for like two years. All of my, the things that I was. doing. And then, uh, you know, I don't love that documentary. I think like, it's cool. Some people have, it's opened the doors to some, I think it's pretty low budget. I don't think it was that well made. I think that, the filmmaker, you know, in editing, kind of put in some of their agenda and kind of trying to make a balanced picture, you know, um, you know, kind of put some stuff in there that I think it was, you know, you can take sound bites and, and, and you know, some of the people in there don't look that great. Um, and like, you know, people who are generally kind, it's just about that one point of them sort of being a jerk in the film. And it's kind of... Uh, but it's out there. There's another one uh, that a woman made the last few years. Uh, that's called uh, Dharma Rebel. Uh, a um, a wonderful f- filmmaker in Holland. She lives in Amsterdam. And this this woman, Babette. Um, I forget Babette's last name. But this movie is done and it's out. They have sh- shown it on, in Holland. It was on Dutch TV. Um, and she's so cool, like she made the um, Sex Pistols and the Berlin Wall movie. She made that, those movies with um, Henry Rollins and Lydia Lunch. Like she's old school punk rock filmmaker, but she's also, oh, yeah, the, yeah. also the president of the like Buddhist film festival shit, like broadcasting stuff in, in Amsterdam. And so she made this documentary that I think is, is pretty cool. Um, and it follows me and Refuge Recovery and then the kind of scandal and, you know, thing, the accusation that happened against me and then how I sort of like said, like, well, here's what I think happened. Um, so that movie actually should be available. And then it, because of COVID, it, it got shut down the release, but it's done and she's ready to do film festivals, hopefully in the UK and over here in the States. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and available you know in dvd or online or whatever soon i think that's going to be a much better um piece on on um kind of what i'm doing and 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 what i've been doing
1: and that's called dharma rebel is it
2: dharma rebel
1: yeah we'll have to check that out Uh, i wanted to ask you um just we're going to wrap it up soon a couple of final questions please but um just about retreats silent retreats you know 10-day retreats for people who meditate, do you think it's really important that they do some retreats? Obviously at the moment with COVID and stuff, it's difficult, but when everything does reopen, do you think it's an important part of the practice?
2: Um, I have benefited so much from it. You know, my own meditation practice process, I've benefited so much from attending silent retreats over the years and it's become a regular part of my practice. And so I, I think that the answer is yes, it's very difficult at times and so beneficial to do. And I think it's really in line with the Buddha's teaching where, you know, he spent three months a year in retreat, the rains retreat. He said, you know, spend nine months a year being of service to others, you know, go and share and do your work and, you know, raise your families or whatever you're you know doing, but also take some time, to just do your intensive investigation of your own heart and mind. Go on retreat. So I've been following that model for you know over 30 years now, and I think it's awesome. People should totally do retreats. And, you know, like retreat is good, but also – It depends on who's teaching the retreat, you know, like even going by yourself, you know, you'll have the experience. But if you have a really good retreat teacher, if you have a really, you know, supportive, good instruction, it'll be that much better. Out there, you know, Simon, I'm always encouraging you and and any listeners that you guys have to connect with the monks out at uh, Amaravati. And they have a retreat center there. Mm. It's not open right now because of COVID. But donation based retreats with the monks and nuns that are teaching there and like that's your best bet out there. I mean, I used to teach some retreats down there at Gaia House, um, which also a good retreat center, but it's that sort of like in the States we say upper middle class, but you guys say middle class, right? For the for the bourgeoisie middle class. It's very much sort of like Bourgeoisie Buddhist, like at some point, they were like, We can't even have Noah here anymore because he swears. And it's just like, you know, that's not real, that's not real Buddhism, that's not real Dharma. Um, so you know, Gaia House is an option, but the monastery, like the monks over there, are such good teachers.
1: I was on the waiting list actually for a few before COVID hit, so because that's Arjun Amaro, isn't it? Your old teacher,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. There, yeah.
1: No, I'm definitely up for it. Oh, I was going to ask something else and I've forgotten what now. Um, did you want to ask anything else before we finish?
0: Um, you know, what? I I would just like to say, um, I, I read your stuff regularly. Who are you reading at the moment? Who, who, do, you, who do you find inspiring?
2: What am I reading? Oh, I'm reading The Count of Monte Cristo right now.
0: Oh, my wow. God, that's amazing book. Yeah.
2: It's an amazing <laughs> book. And I picked it up the other day and I was like, have I read this? Like, I think I've read this because it's like, so in my consciousness as a thing to read, but as I'm reading it, I'm like, I don't think I read this book. I think I missed this. So um, I'm reading that. I know your question was like, what Dharma books am I reading? You know, I've got like these vintage, uh, the Jataka tales, and these are all of the like, supposedly the stories of the Buddha's past incarnations. I'm seeing like what's in, in, uh, you know what I can grasp. I I loved Ajahn Amaro's. One of the last Dharma books I read was Ajahn Amaro's book called The Breakthrough. Which and this is one of those books that you can only get through the monastery. The monastery publishes it, um, so people can get that The Breakthrough through the Amaravati um, website, and you get it. You know, you just say, "Hey, I want that book," and they send it to you I for free, it. and you make a donation but I'm, I'm, oh I God. love reading, but I'm yeah. super into reading novels right now. I've read all the Dharma books and I've written the Dharma yeah. book and I love the Dharma, but when it comes to <laughs> reading right now, like I, wanna read, like I wanna read some cool stories.
0: I did that too. I flipped backwards and forwards. So I'll read something sort of more heavier, like I did uh, John Bradshaw's Homecoming and then followed it with like a Lee Child novel. And then I read Duff McKagan's biography. You know, so, yeah, I like to mix it all up, get a little bit of everything. In I, went on
2: a, uh, I went on a fucking Stephen King kick last year where somebody was like, hey, read this, <laughs> Stephen King, you know, and then it was like a seven-part series about the gunslinger, and I got totally, oh, yeah. like, terrible, and it's great. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's really good, actually. It's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I love a good trashy novel, though, you know, anything that just takes your mind away, like a little bit of escapism is key, I think, sometimes. <laughs> Definitely.
1: Oh, that's brilliant. Well, I just wanted to say like a, a final kind of rounding up that one of the, the most the special thing about when I listen to you and your delivery of the Dharma is that there's no sense of ego within it. There's such humor and you always reiterate, don't take it all so fucking personally. And the way that you always say, don't take my word for it. This is for you to reflect upon and work out whether the Dharma is for you. And that's been so important. And it's not necessarily always the case with other Dharma teachers. I'm not trying to put anyone down, but I've just always found everything that you say has resonated with me. And I know that there's so many people, you know, across the world that you've really helped. And interestingly, so many people who f- start to follow the Dharma Punk Surf songer already follow you and are sharing. So it's like this, this song that you've created is literally going across the world. So although you say you're not worried about your legacy it's fucking here already bro it really is it's here in your books It's here in your dharma talks and we're part of you know not part of your legacy but part of your legacy has brought us to this you know Mm, we wouldn't be sat sat here doing this now if it wasn't for you so 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 thankful for that and um did you want to just to finish um, obviously you're a non-profit and so for anyone listening who'd like to be able to donate to Against the Stream I'm a monthly subscriber which we encourage everyone to do to actually to pay a monthly amount to keep it it costs a lot for obviously your center in Venice Beach and the fact that you're putting it on all these platforms you're paying for Zoom and whatever else I can't even imagine so do you want to just do a little bit of a plug to finish?
2: Uh, yeah I mean sure people that are interested um, againstthestream.com Uh, is the website to check out for for the meditation teachings and then refuge recovery.org is the website to check out for uh, refuge recovery and there's online meetings you know there's a lot of people in the uk that come to the online refuge meetings there were some in-person meetings and will be some more in-person refuge meetings in the uk maybe you'll get one going john and uh, other people will um but those are the two you know ways to to connect with my communities
1: Brilliant. Thank you. Do you want to do the, you know, the prayer that you always finish with? Do you want to do that for us to finish?
2: It's believed that there is a quality of karma that we call merit that comes from our practice and discussion of uh, the Buddha's Dharma, which means the awakened reality uh, that we are discussing today. And if this is so, may this merit, may any of this goodness, this uh, positive energy be shared outward in all directions with all living beings. May each one of us here uh, do the healing that we've taken birth to do. And together, may all of us create a positive change on this planet. thank you thank you thank you so good to be with you thank and, you and so much blessings and and you know all, all good things to your new podcast happy to be one of the inaugural or the inaugural guest on the podcast <laughs> and uh, wishing
1: yeah wishing thank
0: you happy. so much now
1: definitely thank you and guys we'll be back in a couple of weeks interviewing someone else so thanks a lot thanks for listening
0: thank you now.